0: We're going to be talking this morning a lot about hope, and there are many things in this life as an adult that can bring you hope, but I can assuredly tell you that there are nowhere near as many things that bring you hope as there are that bring hope to a four-year-old. I think the older we get, the more cynical we get, and I know, you know, you guys over here in the States, you can do cynicism, but I do not, I don't claim much for my nation, but I do I do claim that in the United Kingdom, when it comes to cynicism, we leave everybody else behind. <laughs> this is, this is, this is going to be a bit macabre, and I apologize for this in advance, but this is honestly true. My father used to tell me, Michael, the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. <laughs> I wish I was making that up. <laughs> but four-year-olds just don't see the world like that, you know? There's so many things that can give them hope. They're hopeful creatures by nature. Now, what the source of that hope is will vary from child to child. Uh, In the life of my son, it might be something grand, like uh, getting to go to Sesame Place. Or it might be something simple, like having pasta for dinner. But whatever it is, it's something that brings hope into his world. The, The flip side of this, though, is that in the life of a 4-year-old, it is much, much harder to deal with the concept of hope deferred. It's amazing the difference that you will receive in response between the following two statements. We're having pasta for dinner tonight. Well, we are having pasta for dinner tomorrow. No! Not tomorrow! I'm never going to eat again! he agrees uh, yeah no it doesn't take much more than the concept of a uh, pastor for dinner being deferred to tomorrow for a four year old to doubt the fundamental goodness of their parents uh, when doubt, doubt in relation to our faith comes in many shapes and sizes but it usually has at its root one of two things First, it can be caused by an immediate circumstance in our own lives. Uh, And and those circumstances cause fear, anger, sadness, loss, and these things lead to doubt. Many of you will have experienced circumstances like that in your life and the doubt that naturally comes with them. It could be the loss of a loved one, a long-term sickness, unemployment, financial struggles. These situations arise in our lives and they feel beyond our control and they cause us to question the one that we thought was in control and to ask if we actually have hope for better days. The second kind of doubt we experience is more existential and it arises more out of a general question about the meaning and purpose of life in this broken world. We see violence, and and hate, and injustice, and oppression run rampant. We hear of hurricanes, or earthquakes, or tsunamis uh, destroying lives. We see hunger, poverty, and disease tear through communities. And all of these kinds of things combined to make us question, is anyone really in control? Is there anything better than this? Is there any cause for hope? Well, what we're going to see this morning is that in Emmanuel, God with us, we have hope for this life and a great existential hope for the future. We have cause for hope in our circumstances now and cause for hope that all that is broken in this world will be fixed and all that is wrong will be set right. And the source of that hope for us is the same as it has been for all people across all generations, God with us. For us, though, who have encountered the risen Christ, the presence of God is more real and more tangible and brings a greater hope than for any previous generation. So as we look into today's texts, we're going to see hope for today and hope for a future tomorrow. But we're also going to try and tackle the idea of those times when our hope for today has to be deferred until tomorrow when we see him face to face, and how we can live with that reality in the meantime. So let's start, uh, actually, in our Old Testament text for the day, in Isaiah 7. So we typically just read the the one verse there, verse 14, um, but there's actually a whole lot behind that verse, a whole lot going on in that story that we're going to look at a little bit. Uh, King Ahaz of Judah, uh, this is in the time of Isaiah, about uh, (laughs) scholars, please don't penalize me, uh, 700-ish years before Jesus, Um, and he is facing an alliance between the kings of Syria and Samaria, who are planning to come down and depose him and replace him with their own choice for king of Jerusalem. And the reason that they're doing this is because they're, they're looking really to strengthen their hand against Assyria who at this point in time were the main power in the region and they want to kind of preemptively protect themselves. Um, But being that Judah is further away from Assyria and, and other reasons I'm sure, Ahaz wasn't quite as concerned and he wasn't going to agree to this alliance. So as a result, the kings of the other two countries have decided to come down and depose him and replace him with someone who's more amenable to their goals. So you can imagine doubt starting to rise from the pit of Ahaz's stomach and to stick in the back of his throat a little bit. And Isaiah, at this point, comes to him with a message from the Lord, which essentially is, stand firm in your trust in me, because this will come to nothing. Uh, Going further, he reveals that in not too many years, the northern kingdom of Israel, which is one of the aggressors against them, is going to be uh, scattered and abandoned. And so Ahaz has nothing to fear if he simply places his trust in God. And then God goes one step further and offers him a sign. And Ahaz initially refuses, thinking that it's not right to test God and he doesn't want to get in trouble. Maybe it's a trick question. Um, But God goes ahead and offers him a sign anyway, saying, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then in verse 15, we've usually stopped by that point, Um, the prophet tells Ahaz that before this child has even stopped eating baby food or learned right from wrong, that the nations threatening them will both be deserted. So let's start by stating the obvious, okay? This prophecy obviously points to the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ, born of Mary before she had been with a man, God incarnate, sent to deliver us from sin and death. However, we have to remember that this was a specific sign given to a specific person at a specific time, facing specific circumstances. Ahaz wanted reassurance that this plot was not going to come to pass. So the question is, when this sign was given to him, what did it mean to him? I obviously have, have read different commentaries trying to figure out what people think about this. And, and it depends who you read. Some think that there may have been a, an actual young woman at the time who was engaged to be married. Um, and this prophecy was saying that she was going to get married, conceive a child in the usual way, and that that child's life would mark the times and seasons when these events would come to pass. Others think that the prophet is, is simply saying that in the time that it would take for a young woman to get married, conceive a child, uh, and, and give birth, That that is the time frame that Ahaz should expect these things to happen in. And there are other opinions out there anyway. But the point is the prophecy meant something to Ahaz and Isaiah in their time and in their situation. Because God is addressing a real threat affecting his people in real life now. And God is a God who cares deeply about what we are facing in our lives now. We're not... Deists. We believe that God is intimately involved in the everyday happenings of human beings all over the world, all the time. He causes the sun to rise, the rain to fall, the world to keep turning. Ahaz and the people of Judah had a real problem that they needed concrete hope for in real time. And God offers it. What was the hope that was offered? His own presence. God's presence was what gave them hope. God's presence was the sign that the dangers they're facing would pass. Because God was with them. In the presence of Almighty God, these threats will come to nothing. And we know with the benefit of hindsight and history that this prophecy was true. The alliance of these two kings came to nothing. And it was not long before Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and carried its king and its people away in exile. God is present with us in the problems we face every day. And this presence of God is what gives us hope. I'm sure that any one of you could point to countless examples. I remember a time in my life, in my early teens, when my family were going through a particularly hard time financially. Uh, in England, when you go to, everybody who goes to school has to wear a school uniform and ours had a blazer. Um, And shortly before the school year started you had to go out and buy your blazer. And then the first thing that would happen on the first day of school is everyone would gather together and compare their blazers and say where they got them and how much it cost. I always quietly slipped away during these conversations and urgently needed the bathroom because I knew my blazer had come from the charity cancer research store for $2. Because my parents didn't have the money to go to Marks and Spencers and get a fancy one. And, and this was like the ultimate insult that the kids would throw at each other. Oh, hey, you got yours for $2 from a charity store. Right? That was actually my reality. I never wanted to be a part of those conversations. There was at a particular time when we were facing real struggle with finances. But God was undeniably present in the life of my family. Because my faithful and prayerful parents welcomed him there every single day. And there was a woman in our church at the time who happened to come into a large amount of money all at once. And she was a woman who loved God, and she prayed, and she asked God why she had come into this money and what she should do with it. Now, we didn't know her at all, as I'm sure there are people in this congregation who could look at each other and not know their names, right? There's... There was no relationship between us, but we had a mutual friend. So she sent a mutual friend to our home with a letter recognizing that she didn't know anything about our circumstances or even why this might be the case, but simply saying that the Lord had laid on her heart that she was to write a check for the equivalent of about $2,000 and send it to us and that she hoped it was a blessing. Uh, This lady didn't need to know about our struggles to be a part of the solution to them, because God knew. Because God was with us. So she listened and He delivered us. God's presence was our hope, was the antidote to the doubts that we might have felt at that time. And we can get so focused on the existential hope that we have in Christ. That we can forget that he cares about the here and now and he wants us to trust him with it he wants to be welcomed into the details of our lives every day to be present with us and to be trusted by us so where in your life today do you need hope I don't know whether for you it's financial struggles or unemployment or long-running health issues or maybe you feel like you're alone The hope that you have in Christ is not just for the future. God is present with you in that situation right now, and his presence is your hope. Trust him with that situation. Bring him your fears, bring him your doubts, and most importantly, bring him the things that you hope for. Having said all this, prophecy is complicated, and it often has more than one event in view being comprised of both a near fulfillment and a far one. With regard to Isaiah 7.14, the sign given to Ahaz symbolized God's continuing presence with his people and his intention to deliver them from their immediate political enemies. But God, as usual, had a bigger plan in mind. A child would be born, and not at all in the usual way, but born of a virgin who had not known a man at the time of conception. And this child would literally be Emmanuel the presence of God with his people. And he had come not just to deliver them, but everyone. And not just from Syria and Samaria, but from the greater enemies of sin and death. So as we turn to look at Luke 1, this is the great future hope that comes into view. So we're fast-forwarding now, again roughly 700 years from the time of Ahaz. And there is another young woman, betrothed to be married, whose pregnancy is going to make headlines. Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, who shares the news with her that she will have a child, which in and of itself for her, that would have been a fairly shocking moment, given that she was unmarried and hadn't been with anyone. But as the angel goes on to explain, this is no ordinary child. To, to use Gabriel's words, the child will grow to be great and will be called the son of the Most High, the Lord will be with him and give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So going back to the prophecy of Isaiah, the young unmarried woman who has not yet lain with a man will conceive a son who himself will be the proof that God is with his people. Now in this time, in, in the first century A.D., God's people had endured 400 long years of stone-cold silence since the last prophet spoke. And then Gabriel came to Mary, and the hope that he brought with him from the heavens was deafening. Even when compared to the history of mighty deeds that God had done among them in the past. God himself was coming to dwell among them. So regardless, really, of whether there was a more immediate, tangible fulfillment of this prophecy in the time of Isaiah and Ahaz, we see in Jesus the ultimate and greater fulfillment of this word from the Lord. Whatever young woman this may or may not have been pointing Ahaz to at the time that the prophecy was made, Mary's pregnancy is the greater fulfillment because she was genuinely a virgin at the time of conception. Whatever child this may or may not have been pointing to in Ahaz's time, Uh, as a sign of God's continuing presence with his people. Jesus is the greater fulfillment, the greater Emmanuel, because he was literally the presence of God in human flesh among the people. The sign given to Ahaz that he will be delivered from the threat of his political enemies pales compared to the sign that Jesus comes to bring the deliverance of God of all people from the ultimate enemies of sin and death and to usher in a kingdom that would be everlasting where there would be peace and the presence of God and no more war. In the moment when Gabriel comes to visit Mary and announces the birth of the one true Emmanuel, God moves to address the foundational and critical needs of the human race for freedom from sin, from death and Satan, and eternal life in a heavenly kingdom where all wrongs are righted. God's people at the time of Mary were under Roman occupation. They were longing for deliverance from Rome. But this was not the deliverance that God had in mind for them. It was much bigger and grander and further reaching. Sin had had a catastrophic effect on humanity and on the world around us. We see throughout history, let alone in the Middle East in the time of Jesus, the human desire to dominate. The Roman Empire was close to its height at this point, but it was just the latest in a long line of empires, stretching back through the Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Furthermore, in Israel at the time of Jesus, the religious elite were lording their authority over everybody else. And the poor, the lame, the sick, the outcast were being pushed to the fringes. There was poverty and disease and demon possession All over the place. But rather than the specific earthly circumstance of being under Roman occupation, the cause of all this, the ultimate problem, was sin. Sin had destroyed everything. It destroyed humanity's relationship with God, with each other, and even with creation all around them. Everything was broken, and they were seeing the effects of this everywhere. The birth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, was God's response to this catastrophic problem. God's own presence coming among his people. And in the life of Jesus, pointing to this great future hope of a kingdom free of such things, you see hope bursting out into people's lives now, everywhere. Diseases are cured. The lame walk. The blind see. Demons are driven out. The outcasts are welcome in. Those who are seeking to dominate are called to account. And these deliverances in the lives of people now, here and now, everywhere, not only did they change those people's lives today, but they also pointed forward to a time when all such things would be done away with. So after this long line of oppressive human empires, A new kingdom was rising, brought by someone who wasn't seeking to dominate, but was seeking to serve. One that was going to flip things upside down and put the first last and the last first. Sin was going to be dealt with decisively, and a hope-filled tomorrow was going to be offered to any and all who put their trust in Emmanuel, God with us. However... The promise of a hope-filled tomorrow in the upside-down kingdom of God doesn't change the continuing brokenness of this world now. Not yet. And it isn't just in human behavior that you see the effects of sin. Paul says in Romans 8 that even creation itself is subject to bondage and corruption and is groaning while it waits for its redemption. Thankfully, Jesus Christ wasn't incarnated among us simply for the sake of the individual salvation of anyone who trusts in him. Through Jesus, God's plan is to redeem all of creation and bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that on some glorious future tomorrow, all hopes will be fulfilled, the world will be remade, and the pain we've suffered in this life will be a thing of the past. As we look at the world around us in its profound brokenness, it can be really easy to get weighed down with doubt and to start to wonder, is anybody really in control? Or is this whole thing just some cosmic accident? But if you look closely, you can see Jesus' kingdom breaking out everywhere in the world all around you, offering hope now and pointing to a greater future hope. You can see this in every answered prayer. You can see this in in every story where God has miraculously financially provided. Every story of of a tumor that disappeared on a scan. You can see it in every story of answered prayer. Because we know that God does answer those prayers. He did for Ahaz. But the hope we have is multi-layered. As well as the hope for the struggles we have now, we have that hope for eternity in God's kingdom, in the presence of the great I am. And all of those little deliverances are supposed to point our eyes there so that we look forward to that and focus on that. However, the fact of the matter is there are going to be times when we are searching for hope today, but God has in mind a greater hope for tomorrow. The people of Judah were delivered in the time of Ahaz, But it was barely a hundred years later when they were exiled themselves to Babylon. And despite the mighty work of salvation done among them, the people uh, of Israel in the time of Jesus still had to continue living under Roman occupation. So how do we hold on to that hope, that great hope we have for tomorrow when our circumstances in this world feel so hopeless at times? We live in the now but the not yet. God has been incarnated among us. Death and sin have been decisively defeated. Satan's rule in this world has been overthrown. And Jesus has brought the kingdom of God on earth. Yet it hasn't yet reached its fulfillment. People still hunger and thirst. Disease still ravages our bodies, the world still groans under the weight of hurricanes and earthquakes, and the strong still seek to oppress and dominate the weak. So while we're in this in-between stage, it's unfortunately true that some of what we hope for today will have to be deferred until tomorrow. We will live with a certain amount of grief and brokenness in this life now, while we look forward with hope to the day Jesus comes back and sets everything right once and for all. Sometimes the hope that we look forward to will even feel a little dim and distant compared with the suffering we face now. So I want to look at just a few very practical things that we can do to hold on to that future hope when facing our present brokenness. One of the clearest examples of this hope deferred that I can offer in my own experience and from my own life is in the case of miscarriage. Katie and I tried for six years to have a child before Asher was born. And in the process, we experienced multiple miscarriages. Now, believing as we do in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his eternal kingdom, we have hope that we will one day see those children again. But that hope sometimes feels far away when compared with the hollow feeling I feel inside me when I look around and know that those children are not here now. I prayed in the days and weeks after those losses, and I often felt that I was just talking to the ceiling, and that there was no one above the ceiling that was hearing anything I was saying. So I had to confront that and think of ways that I could live now holding on to that future hope that felt so far off. And the first thing I want to say is not to ignore or hide from doubt. In the world that we live in, doubt is an inevitable part of the experience of every believer. And when we bury our heads in the sand and try to pretend that it's not there to hide it from ourselves and each other we fail to confront it and fail to deal with it. It can be fatal to our faith because it festers and grows in the dark and it gives birth to bitterness and cynicism. You have doubts. That's okay. So did every great hero of the faith. Be honest about them. Share them with others. Pray about them. Talk through them. And most importantly, preach the gospel to your doubts that one day Jesus Christ will come and set all these things right. Secondly, make use of the practice of lament. Lament is a biblical response to sin, suffering, and sorrow that allows us to vent to God about the trials we face in this life and to ask God to be present and bring hope into those situations. It's a way of surrendering your doubts, surrendering your fears to God, being honest about them, and laying them down before his throne. Thirdly, we ourselves can choose to be a source of hope in this broken world now. Jesus sent out his church to demonstrate what life will be like in the kingdom when it comes in its fullness. The apostles were sent out to raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons, because sick and death and demons have no place in God's future kingdom. And when they did those things, it showed people what that kingdom would look like. We are sent out similarly to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and imprisoned. Because these kinds of want and suffering have no place in God's kingdom. And as we do this, we must also proclaim Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, as our only source of present and future hope through his death and resurrection. Perhaps most hopefully of all, though, we serve a God who took on broken human flesh, lived, suffered, wept, bled, and died. And he did that in solidarity with his creation before rising above the brokenness to newness of life. When all else fails to bring you hope, know that God is with you in your suffering and he is weeping with you and for you. Know that he empathizes with your pain because he has experienced much of it in this world with you. Know that He's present in your pain in the times when you get the answers you're looking for and in the times when you don't. Know that He is deeply moved by your pain and that He went through His own pain to show you that even in the darkest of nights, there is hope. Hope in the presence of God. Hope in Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. All of our hope, whether for this life now or for the world to come after Christ returns is found in the presence of God with us. We have hope for the situations we face in this broken world because God is present with us in our struggles, hears our prayers, and answers them. We have hope for the life to come knowing that because God was incarnated in Jesus Christ that all wrongs will be righted and his kingdom will come. And we have hope in the darkest and most hopeless moments that this life brings, knowing that Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, our suffering Savior, is present with us in those moments and is moved by our pain. So don't be afraid of doubt. Meet it head on with the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, who is the very presence of God with us. Lament for the brokenness of this world. Lay your questions down at the foot of the cross. Know that one day all questions will be answered. All tears will be tenderly wiped away. And go out into the world to take this hope that you have in Christ to the people around you. So that they might know the hope and comfort found in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sins and to offer us this great future hope. But thank you that we know that you are present with us in our lives now, weeping with us in our pain, answering our prayers and pointing us forward to the future kingdom. I pray that you would help each one of us to be people who point others forward to that same kingdom and to the hope they have in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.